welcome to episode 116 of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And, uh, oh, we got a lot of big things going on, but um, including some news that kind of preempted my notes. So we'll get to that. Uh, if you have any questions or comments, you can email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com, kbmakel at aol.com. Or you can leave them for us on Podbean, which is the architecture we use to actually make and hang these podcasts. So you can go ahead and do that and uh, let us know what you think. Let us know if you have a question or just say hello and uh, give us a comment. No, no worries. Love to hear from you. Okay, uh, before I get to the uh, regular political news, it just kind of broke yesterday afternoon, and, and they've expanded a little bit on it this morning. Apparently, one each Alec Baldwin, a, a guy who's a known demonstrated fool, has apparently accidentally on the scene of his new movie called Rust, which is a Western, has shot two people, killing one, uh, allegedly by mistake. Uh, there was a lady uh, cinematographer, um, you know, she was she was on the scene, apparently she was hit in the stomach, and the director was hit some somewhere else. Uh, don't know if it was a single, don't know if we're dealing with the single bullet theory, or if something went off twice. If it's a western, it's hard to think that it was anything other than a single bullet, because unless he was just firing like crazy and didn't understand the difference, but apparently a firearm, which should always be treated as loaded with lethal ammunition, but apparently a firearm had actual cartridges in it instead of blanks. Now, how this could happen is absolutely well in hollywood you you would expect stupidity breeds this kind of this kind of accident uh, this isn't an accidental discharge negligent discharge probably a negligent homicide discharge um there's just no way that you can be doing that and it's not like they were doing a scene and it was pointed at another actor the way the script wrote this was pointed at a cinematographer and somehow also hit hit um the director so I can only assume that uh, you know it was something you know if it was horseplay or some kind of nonsense you can't uh, it, it's just the worst situation every gun should be treated as if it is loaded and you know this has happened before it happened to Brandon Lee the son of martial artist uh, famous martial artist, kind of martial arts icon, Bruce Lee. He was killed on a set when I believe the same thing kind of happened. It was a loaded revolver. Somebody pointed it at him and fired, and you know that act, the actor who did it had to live with it the rest of his life. Didn't know, took, assumed that this thing had been handled properly by the prop department. That is at least a little more understandable than so far what we've heard about this. You know, it was pointed at another actor during a scene should have been loaded correctly but was loaded with actual cartridges uh it's just it's unbelievable to think that that could happen what are actual cartridges doing on a movie set and anywhere near a prop gun the only time i can think where actual cartridges are needed on a movie set because you know they have special effects you know when you see the bullets hitting the wall and all that those are little charges like little firecrackers they put on the wall and things uh, actually, if you watch the movie, uh, well, never mind. But, um, you know, if you watch some of the action movies, you can actually see those things going off. And and uh, it's a, you know, it's, it's definitely, you know, all special effects. The only time cartridges should ever be anywhere near a movie set is in the hands of security guards. Or guards, people who are actually physically guarding someone or something or empowered to be armed to keep people out that would be the only that would be the only time they should be there and they certainly should never be in the company of the firearms that are used to uh, make a make a scene and 
you know, I, I know I'm no fan of Alec Baldwin. I think he's a jerk. I don't think that his Trump impression was funny. I don't think any of those political impressions are funny because they uh, they all have an edge and an agenda to them. Baldwin is a big vehement anti-gunner. Another hypocrite. First of all, if he was smart and had actually any training, and people like Keanu Reeves and some of these other folks, even Angelina Jolie, I believe, have gotten firearms training for their movies and have kind of you know, carried that over into their personal lives if they own firearms and, and they're very careful with them. And I believe Keanu Reeves is a a very kind of a keen competitor in USPSA or IPDA or something. But um, what we have is definitely a problem. And that problem is, um, you know, we have these hypocrite anti-gun actors like Alec Baldwin and they don't bother getting any training they don't understand firearms they don't think you should have them even though they don't understand them themselves and uh, consequently these people are uh, trying to make decisions and other things for you and they don't even have the basics so when they're handling these things they're dangerous there was another actor years and years ago i think his name was john hexham and I forget the television show or whatever, but he was horse playing and there was a gun loaded with blanks and he didn't understand what a blank was or how it operates. And he put it up to his head and pulled the trigger and it drove a piece of his skull right through his brain and killed him because a blank does have power. You know, just to make the noise and, you know, the little bit of smoke or whatever, a blank has power. A blank just isn't a squirt gun squirt or a little puff of air. You know, it's not a Nerf gun. So, you know, these Hollywood has got a very, very bad track record of fools handling firearms. And some of these fools, like in Alec Baldwin's case, are people who are vehemently anti-gun. But it doesn't stop their hypocritical use of guns to make their movies, which make them money. So Alec Baldwin may be in some serious trouble. If he was horse playing around, uh, he could negligent homicide is is probably something on the table if it was a prop gun handed to him during a scene or for a rehearsal you know that that might be a little different that might be a little different case but it's i would be i would be very very paranoid to the point of being a safety nazi about guns used on a set if i were an actor I mean, I just would not take the chance. They would have to demonstrate to me before the scene that it was safely loaded with blanks and that we would have a plan by which nobody is put at risk. And I realize that always goes with the um, that always goes against the the realism, and they're always trying to push the uh, envelope on that. But anyway, that's the big breaking news. Uh, the regular news, uh, a little more two A stuff. You know, Biden's going down. He, he hasn't even been president a year, and he's already ruined his presidency. He has already become just a... a he's become the, the ghost of Jimmy Carter past. He is the probably the worst performing president we've ever had in the country. And, you know, the guy stole an election, but he still can't... But he won't do the job afterwards. But you notice how his agenda has gone just down the toilet... You notice that nobody is talking about the following things. Uh, braces for large frame pistols. Pistol braces. Nobody's talking about those. The world is not going to end because of pistol braces. Or AR-15s. Or large frame pistols. All these things that were in the gun control agenda just a year ago have, have vanished. They have vanished in the haze. And that's because, number one, he's never going to get any of that passed, even even by regulatory, you know, presidential directive, you know, executive order fiat. These things just aren't going to happen. Uh, the only thing he's done is is uh, kind of put a ding into the ammo thing with the uh, the Russian stuff. But even that's, I think, can be mitigated very quickly if uh, a few people ask. And I think we have a we have a question on that. Now, let me look down here. No, 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 no. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, our first question and question and answers is about that. So we'll save that for then. Um, you know, that is a very, very interesting that gun control, which was the big priority, one of his cornerstone priorities, now isn't even important enough to talk about. He doesn't talk about it because he knows it's fake. He knows gun control is a fake issue. It's a fake issue, and there's no mileage to be gained there, at least right now. And he knows he's not gonna, not gonna get it. So he doesn't even bother with it. That tells you the issue is fake, and gun rights are much more important. And we really have to keep keep the pressure up. But this guy, gun control is a fake issue. It's a fake argument, and uh, this proves it. Because if it were that important, he never would have abandoned it. So there you go. Ah, uh, Bill Clinton was in the hospital and released. Um, <laughs> the first thing that came to my mind was, wow, they really have great treatments these days for venereal disease. Because we know Bill Clinton. We know what he does. We know what he did on Epstein's Island, or we can imagine we know. And so, you know, when Bill Clinton goes in the hospital, I assume it's it's for uh, social disease reasons. And, uh, you know, they've made a lot of strides, I think, treating that. And he got out of the uh, hospital pretty quickly. So, you know, <laughs> Bill, Bill Clinton, and I'm sure that that is probably not his first uh, first run in engagement with those uh, diseases. Um let's see ah the passing of Colin Powell you know I, I actually met Colin Powell when he was a one-star general we were in the same division I was one of the the low 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 underlings and he was the assistant division commander uh, he was a good guy I mean he was a good guy I mean he wasn't a real fireball but he was really professional a good guy so I was kind of you know had a at least a uh, passing interest in what he was doing and the thing that disappointed me, where he basically proved that he was not the man everybody says he was, because everybody wanted to lionize him. You know, he was the greatest, the greatest general ever, which he was not. He was, he was this, he was that, and you know, I don't know. In two thousand and eight, naturally, he should have supported John McCain. And I realized that he probably hated John McCain. They probably hated each other. They were probably foes, even though they were notionally anyway, on the same side as as Republicans. So rather than standing mute and wherever he thought he could get a um, gain some favor and get a good job that's kind of where he landed up at first it was the Republicans and then he flipped over because he thought the Democrats would get it I can't figure out except for reasons of race why he would have supported and endorsed Barack Obama unless he thought he was going to get something in return that's the only reason it was either it was a quid pro quo, which I don't think ever happened, or uh, it was about race. So I just kind of believe it's about race. So Colin Powell is gone, and really he left his his uh, actions in later life made him a much smaller, smaller and less consequential figure. Okay, let's get into some gun stuff. Uh, bullet casting. I've been doing a lot of bullet casting lately, you know, and it's really kind of rediscovering something that's kind of fun. Um, I use all Lee equipment because A, it's cheap, and because B, it's cheap. But, um, you know, I mean, it, Lee equipment can do the work that equipment that a, a, you know, a furnace that costs three or four times as much can do. And really, the only step up from that is if you go to you know the stuff like the magma engineering um, almost commercial quality casting 
and you'd have to use do a lot of shooting to to do that and you'd have to have a really big lead source i mean you just don't buy high capacity equipment like that without having having that all squared away and that's much more of an investment than i can can or need to make so i use the least stuff i do have some of the um six cavity molds and you can really turn out some bullets with those they're, they're a little more problematic to get up to temperature and and to maintain the temperature um, i find the two cavity molds are really optimal um, you know you i i go into the shop i plug in the furnace i might have to add a little lead to the pot once that lead heats up, I, I kind of just dip the corner of the mold in because aluminum molds are really good when they get warm. The, the uh, lead doesn't stick to them. And basically when it gets to the point where the lead doesn't... Then it starts, you know, really cooking along. And, and uh, when you start getting frosted bullets, your alloy is probably a little too hot. So I kind of kick down the temperature then. Let the mold cool just a little bit for maybe 30, 45 seconds. And then I uh, start casting again and I get the nice silvery bullet. There's nothing wrong with frosted bullets. And in fact, um, I think it was Mike Venturino. He basically said that a lot of the bullets that, that uh, bullet casters reject are actually fine, especially if you're shooting, you know, pistols at short range. Um, black powder rifles or, or uh, uh, regular kind of rifle loads might be a little different, but, but certainly pistol bullets don't have to be as perfect as we think sometimes. But I'm kind of old school, so I kind of kick them back. But uh, frosted bullets I've always used and have never had a problem with. So that's uh, that's a little thing there. One of the things that I found is invaluable is the old school way was you had one of those. It almost looked like a food thermometer that you dipped in the lead, and it had the little you know kind of looked like a compass dial, and it's got the little needle that goes to the temperature. You know, if if you got one of those, you can you can still use it. I'm sure they're still fine. I believe they um, I believe they measure temperature because that stem you you dip in there is made of two different metals and they heat and expand at different rates so those changes are what's what gets picked up um, however all that works but I find that the little you know the little 10 15 dollar temperature guns that you can get I'm, I'm holding one that I think we picked it up in tractor supply on sale for like 14 14.99 or was it 12.99 or something um, those things are perfect take two little double-a batteries uh, I always I can hit the pot the the, um, the mold the lead with that and you know the nice part is if you remember those numbers and they're, they're gonna be a little individual for everybody I suppose depending on the 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 little laser gun and all that uh, but you know if you know those numbers then you know you you can get it right and you can almost start casting perfect bullets from the first first pour or two you know if you manage those temperatures right so that that's really an awesome piece of equipment this one is infrared thermometer and it's model blah 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 it's kind of a green thing doesn't really have a manufacturer on it because it's so it is so high-end <laughs> um, it actually does not have a manufacturer's name on it but you can find these things um, I think you can get them on Amazon you can get them I, I found mine in tractor supply I, I'm sure that uh, Home Depot and other places have them so bullet casting a great way to get bullets and and you know what it got me back into bullet casting well, let me start. I started bullet casting a lot of years ago. I was actually in high school or, yeah, I think I was in high school. My last year in high school. Had a foot operation. And, um, you know, hey, I, I was laid up. I couldn't I couldn't walk around, get around anywhere. And, of course, I was starting. I'd, I'd been a starting hand loader and, and uh, I had a RCBS press and all that. And I just, I just looked and it's like, hey, the first... The first uh, little Lee furnace I had, I think, cost 19.95. I think molds back then, and I think I still have the molds somewhere here. I don't think I got rid of it because I never get rid of molds. Um, those were like 9.95, single cavity, 45 ACP. You know, you just dink, did one at a time. You know, and um, 
you know, dual cavity molds. I don't think, I don't think Lee, I don't know that Lee even made them then. They may have just had the single cavities. But whatever it was, I mean, I could cast up 50 or 100 of those things in an afternoon because I wasn't walking around going doing anything anyway. And that's how I started. Um, later, I got to the point where um, I was just buying cast bullets because my use, I just couldn't keep up. I didn't have the time. The problem with bullet casting is it requires time and it requires effort. And you got to kind of know what you're doing and uh, kind of go with all that. And um, I really couldn't cast fast enough to produce the, the amount of bullets I needed so I would buy and especially you know I was shooting um, target wad cutters you know 38 wad cutters at that point and and a few other things so uh, anyway you know and yeah that was the other thing I you know you could invest in a lot of different molds if you weren't careful which I have done now done because I get I basically got a mold for everything and I'll tell you why I didn't do a lot of bullet casting for years and years and years. Um, about 15 years ago, though, I bought two new Lee furnaces. One I've never used. The other one is is one I've used just intermittently a few times in that time. And uh, what really kicked me in the high gear was uh, when I started to order bullets at the beginning of the pandemic. And I got some, which was great because I did some loading with them. But then all of a sudden I had this problem of, hey, it's going to be 14 to 16 weeks. And I'm like, shoot, I can't, I can't wait for that. I don't want to wait for that. So what I did was um, I simply just started casting again. And, uh, you know, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Um, is it is, you know, sometimes you go, man, you know, 500 wad cutters only cost you 37 bucks or it cost you about 45 dollars with the shipping is it really worth you know taking a dual cavity mold and doing it and all i can say is if you have time it's it's well worth it it's uh it's well worth it um you do have to source lead somewhere you can even buy it um work out the economics and see if it makes sense for you but the other thing was the economics is one part but also having it is another. I mean, when it comes down to, hey, if I need 500 wad cutters, I can't wait. I don't want to wait 16 weeks. And now we're in, a, in an economy where you got to wait for things because um, somehow our government has goofed everything up. So our supply chains are now completely dysfunctional. Sometimes they work great. Sometimes they don't. So... Uh, I don't want to be as I want to be as independent as possible. The only thing I really want and need are going to be primers and shell casings, and I'll even do what I can to scrounge up uh, shell casings because I do and and keep a supply because I just don't want to be dependent because um, you know that's the way it is, and and I'd rather cast bullets than try to buy and stockpile them. Because I do have to buy and stockpile primers, so that's the thing with bullet casting—a uh, very, very good side hobby too. It's interesting, and if you get the Lyman uh, cast bullet handbook, it's got this incredibly long metallurgical article about the metals and all the rest of that. And it's—you uh, know—it's not that interesting to me because I'm not a huge science guy. I'm like, hey, you know, I get it, I melt it. I put it in the mold, and when it hardens, I pop it out and, and go. I'm not really worried about the microcrystalline structures and all that. That's that's something that I, you know, frankly, I just don't need to worry about. So anyway, that is bullet casting. Oh, and I do have an update, powder coating. Uh, the last podcast, I told you that powder coating was problematic and that I was having a very very difficult time with it and and that continued um, I tried several at first I, I made the the usual beginner mistakes I bought harbor freight I wanted to turn out black bullets I thought you know lead bullets that are kind of powder coated black will look good so I went down I got harbor freight there was a couple of videos that showed guys using it and it, it worked so I got harbor freight black powder coating I watched a few more videos and, and uh, read online and, and did more research, and it turns out that that's actually trash. Don't use it because it's it's just garbage. It doesn't cling to the bullets. 
So uh, I kind of put that off to the side, and I got the East. And they said the blue works the best. The kind of Ford powder blue uh, color works best. I got that, and it didn't work. I mean, it just didn't work. And so I said, well, something else must be wrong. And I don't know if it's because of the humidity or lack of humidity or, or what it is, but it seems like people from California to places in the south and in Tennessee, humidity doesn't seem to be that big of a problem, but I think it is because what you, what you have to do is generate static electricity. And when you generate static electricity, that's what causes the, the powder coat to cling to the bullets a little bit. So... Um, and they put, said put it in this certain type of container and use it. That, none of that worked. But one thing that did work, I watched one, uh, and, and I am not an expert on this, so I'm not, I'm not trying to give you a tutorial. But they said put the, uh, the powder coat and the bullets in a baggie, a large baggie. And a baggie will, you know, when you swish them around in there, it'll, that plastic there will generate enough static electricity so it'll coat. Work like a charm. So I was able to coat some uh, some bullets, both rifle and pistol. I've tested out the pistol bullets, and I've actually uh, sized up the uh, rifle bullets, and uh, they look really good so far. I my belief is, just from looking at these bullets, is they can be driven to, especially in pistols, you can probably drive them close or to jacketed bullet velocities. You probably can do that. Um, it's basically putting a little jacket on the bullet. Now, you know, there, there's all these other things, and I'm not going to go into the all the details and tutorials, but if you're hand-loading, you have them sized correctly, and um, you have the powder coat on it, you've got a bullet that's, you know, as, maybe as good as a plated bullet. You know, and those plated bullets are just as good as an FMJ, you know, um, at least in my experience. So... Uh, it's very interesting. It's really, it's really one of the more fun things that I've done. It's kind of, you know, mastering um, even a small skill like that is uh, is really a lot of fun and worth doing. So that's a uh, that was a big win. It's a big win, and I'll explain uh, in a minute the uh, testing I did with the pistol bullets, which were a little bit of uh, a little bit different. But uh, that brings me to the next thing. And uh, this was something that I talked about a couple of podcasts ago. You know, I, I will tell you this. With ammo bans from friendly countries or unfriendly countries, and you know, are they willing to export? Can they get the import license here? Can they even get unloaded at the dock? Uh, there's a lot of, there's, you know, the ammo supply is strange right now it seems like you can buy a lot of the high-end stuff which you know this is this is going back to the 70s it, it, it does does it is it just me or do we feel like we're retroing back to the 70s you know um biden is the ghost of jimmy carter inflation is back ammo prices remember how ammo was kind of expensive in the 70s very very expensive there wasn't any kind of surplus or shooter grade or blaster plinking ammo it was all kind of hunting ammo and the pistol ammo that was out there there was you know they didn't have all the bullet styles and things they did now but but it was very expensive you know it, it so they're driving us to hand loading again you know hand loading hand loading was big back then if you were a shooter you you kind of had to hand load and um it's we're being driven back to that now but on a larger scale because people shoot a lot more now back then people did not at the range expend the kind of ammo that they they had now, it's harder to shoot 30-06 a lot a, a huge quantity of that out of a bolt action rifle at a range than it is 556 out of an AR-15, you know, that they're just, the 5.56 consumes a lot more ammo usually. So, uh, and the shooting competitions are a lot different now, and the round counts are higher and everything else. So we're being driven back to hand-loading. Uh, hand-loading got a big impetus in the 80s with, with IPSC, USPSA, you know, and later on IPDA, and also, um, 
you know, cowboy action, you know, that's when a lot of people started investing in Dillon machines and, and the progressive loaders because, you know, face it, the single stage just couldn't keep up or you just couldn't keep up. So uh, we're seeing another wave now because it kind of went down. There was a lot of surplus coming in. You know, tall ammo, tooler ammo, however you want to say it. You know, um, I've even said on this podcast a couple years ago when I first started, who who would really reload nine millimeter when you can, for the kind of prices you can buy it? You know, you couldn't even get components. Well, now the the whole game has changed, and uh, to produce it, uh, I kind of outlined a couple ways to do it, and um, the deal is, it may not help you this ammo shortage. It will help you the next ammo shortage. And if I if I had no hand loading equipment or very little, you know, what I would do is you, you gotta find two or three solid guys. Find your best buds, solid dudes, and invest some money. Buy a Dylan machine. You know, and I, I went through this before. Buy a couple of eight pound kegs of powder. Buy a couple of uh you know, start scrounging brass, even range pickup brass. And and you have to have a common caliber. You know, this is, you know, hey, if you got a 3840, well, hey, I'm sorry. You're going to have to deal with that on your own. But if you shoot like a lot of 9mm for competition or that's just a caliber that you shoot, that's your, one of your main calibers, you know, you get in with guys and you can, you can hit like, nine millimeter and maybe five five six but for certain nine millimeter and uh you know start cranking that stuff out uh start scrounging up the cases pro and you can you can process cases ahead of time you know deep prime moments inspect deep prime uh clean and and have you can have thousands of rounds ready thousands of rounds ready while you're waiting on primers which is probably what you're going to be waiting on because I think it's going to be about another year before we see those again so we're really looking at accruing the you know the raw material and part of that is you can you can buy bullets now and you could the way I would do it is I would just go to like a Missouri bullet company or one of the other suppliers and buy a thousand bullets a month for the next year you know, where you got 12,000 rounds, 12,000 bullets waiting to go. You're not, uh, you know, you're not putting in a, a fantastically huge order, but, you know, you're just, you're just buying it and accruing it. And when primers become available, you just start buying them. Then at a certain point, when you've got enough cases, you've got enough bullets and you've got enough primers and you've got powder, you launch into product production. And, uh, you know, produce uh, if you have four guys and you produce 12,000 rounds that's 3,000 rounds a piece if you got two guys and you do 12,000 rounds oh well, that's 6,000 rounds a piece you know depend depending on how you you know cut the cut the pie and how big you want to go um, maybe you go a few thousand rounds of nine millimeter each and then uh, say 2,000 rounds of 556 five, each you know it can be done it can be done it's an investment in time and investment in equipment, but it makes you self-sufficient and insulates you from some of the market fluctuations that we happen to see today. So that's about the uh, biggest thing, hand-loading on a large scale. Another thing that's related is now that we're living in an era where some of the kind of oddball or seldom used, whatever you want to call them, Cart boutique cartridges just aren't being loaded because everybody's loading the main stuff that they know they can sell. Um, and I'm talking this specific example is 38 Smith and Wesson, not 38 Special, but the earlier 38 Smith and Wesson cartridge. Uh, face it, you know, if they do a run of this stuff, it, it might take it a year or you know some time to sell out. They're, it's not a big seller. They do the same number of nine millimeter rounds and they're sold <laughs> the day they finish producing them so no one is really producing this older stuff right now they're they're concentrating on the stuff they know is going to just fly out the door don't blame them there but that doesn't help us the guys and gals who own these things and it's like i was looking i think i have a box of 38 smith wesson 
And over the years, because they were so cheap, I've managed to acquire three revolvers for it. One being a Webley, one being a Colt Police Positive. It's marked Royal Hong Kong Police. It's a very cool gun, um, just because of that marking and obviously its associated history. And the next one, which is uh, which is really awesome, is the Smith and Wesson Victory model in 38 Smith and Wesson that was made for the Allies. We made them for the uh, English and the Australians, and um, I believe mine was Australian. At least that's you know they, they imported a bunch. This is back in the early 2000s, maybe even late 90s. I don't know, but um, they imported a whole bunch of these things, and they're selling dirt cheap. I mean, literally, I believe you could buy, I think I bought the Webley for 60 bucks, and I think I bought the uh, Smith & Wesson for about that, you know. I mean, they were selling for nothing because they were unpopular cartridges. If, As a matter of fact, to reach back into some JFK assassination lore, um, the police officer J.D. Tippett, who was murdered by Lee Harvey Oswald, Oswald shot him with a, a uh, former English um, victory model Smith & Wesson. There was 38 Smith & Wesson, but it had been uh, they, they put a reamer in there to, uh, to lengthen the uh, cylinder so it would take 38 special cartridges. Problem with that is the 38 Smith & Wesson is a broader cartridge, so you get really bad, or you get, you get case bulging, and I'll, I'll talk about that a little later, but anyway to, so you know these things have been around for a while this this importation that came in i think was one of the last ones where australia was getting rid of them they're nice guns they're well made they're nice now they have the wartime finish they're not these aren't the beautiful model tens that you're used to seeing even the former police model tens that have been that have had a pretty rough life are, are usually still pretty nice guns in many ways uh, these are, are a lot rougher um external finishing and everything but the you know the internals are 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 all very good so anyway i got these three so i i just thought i i had time on my hands which is always a dangerous thing and uh so what i did was i started researching well can i cut down there's about a quarter of an inch difference between a 38 special and the 38 smith and wesson and the 38 smith and wesson is is a slightly larger cartridge uh, diameter of the actual cartridge case is a little larger so i looked around there and i said hey can i convert 38 specials to that as an imperfect solution because i can't find 38 smith and wesson brass anywhere because nobody's making it because they're making all the stuff that they can sell right away so even the brass makers aren't making it so unless you find some dead stock somewhere you're just not going to find it so i looked around i couldn't find any so then i i did some research and people said yeah you can do this but it's you know it's not worth doing because you should be able to buy the uh the the correct brass for it so what i'm what i'm going to tell you is it's not something i recommend but i will tell you my experiences with it um not having a lathe and having some kind of more primitive equipment what i basically did was i measured off how much i had to cut from a 38 and i had some 38 specials that had uh brass that you know range pickups and things that there was you know some of these were things must have been reloaded at least once maybe twice maybe even more so i decided hey these things can be sacrificial so uh, what I did was I measured off, marked, and then used my little Harbor Freight chop saw to chop them to the pretty much the appropriate length. A um, couple got undersized because my, me my measuring and chopping, my measuring was good, but my chopping wasn't so good. But it, it really didn't matter. You know, I'm not looking to produce target loads. And this, this is really pretty sloppy hand loading, to be, to be honest with you. But I wanted to get something I could fire in the gun. You know, I can fire these in the gun. Uh, I took, again, to go back to bullet casting, I had a Lee mold for um, uh, a 200 grain 358 bullet so i'm like well you know that the the british loading to go back to the history of the 38 smith and wesson cartridge just to interrupt myself um 38 smith and wesson came out in 1877 1878 late 1870s okay it was kind of a good cartridge for its day the reason that all these older cartridges were called 38s is because they actually they didn't measure the bullet they actually measured the 
outside diameter of the case and they've got 38 caliber since since that time we've we've actually measured the bore diameter and that's what we call a lot of cartridges but to go back to the 38 smith and wesson it was a popular gun uh cartridge for smaller guns you know kind of the equivalent of snub nose revolvers it threw out you know kind of variety of bullets but you know, it threw out about basically 150, 170 grain bullet, you know, pretty low velocity. And the modern loadings of the cartridge are taking into account that there's a lot of older, weaker guns out there for it. And that throws out like 146 grain bullet at like 700 and 700 feet per second. Yeah, something 700 feet per second. I mean, it's pretty puny. And that bullet has never shot well for me. In every gun I've ever shot it in, it has never shot. Those loads have never shot well. I mean, they they actuate, but they don't shoot anything like a tight group. They don't. They just don't perform very well, and they don't hit point of aim. They always they always kind of hit uh, um, differently. I I find that they actually hit low. I don't know why, but I find that they hit low. So anyway, I never was really happy with that. The history of the cartridge was, you know, there was thirty eight. It was also called 38 Colt New Police. And then later in life, it got reincarnated as the 38200 or 38200 by the British. And that's another kind of another story. But uh, through the 1800s, or by about 1920, this cartridge was done. I mean, the 38 Special had was out and it was taking the world by storm. And it had knocked out the 38 Smith & Wesson, 38 Short Colt, 38 Long Colt. We're, we're pretty much done. Inexplicably, this was saved from extinction by the British, who decided after World War I they didn't want the 455 Webley anymore. They adopted this cartridge with a 200-grain lead bullet. Okay. Now, there's just certain things that cannot be explained, and that, that move is one that you could never explain. My only thought would be that, you know, somehow it was going to fit into a 38 Special wouldn't work in a Webley because those are pretty short cylinder guns. Even if you scale the 455 down to 38, which was basically what they did, uh, the cylinder isn't long enough for 38 Special. But anyway, so anyway, they, they they got this one. They got the 200-grain bullet. Uh, in the late 30s, they kind of figured out the 200-grain lead bullet was going to uh, put them at odds with international conventions. You know, they, they, they say Geneva conventions, but usually it's Hague conventions or whatever, um, which kind of outlawed lead bullets, you know, bare lead bullets. That's why most military, all military ammunition is really kind of full, full metal jacket. So they went to a like 178 grain full metal jacket, wimpy 38 that they had in a Webley revolver. You know, if this is starting to sound like the worst of all possible worlds, you're getting you're getting the picture. You're getting the picture right away. So World War II starts. That's their pistol cartridge. Um, they really want to adopt the nine millimeter Browning high power, but that's going to take time, and that's never going to fully happen. Um, so they've got scads of these 38 Webley, 38 Smith & Wesson, or 38, more correctly, 380-200 revolvers. And so they, they need more guns, and they got plenty of ammo. So we produce the, Smith & Wesson produces the Model 10 in this caliber for them. And uh, we ship them scads of these things, scads. And, and for years, years, literally, literally... For 50 years, maybe even close to 60 years after World War II, these things were dirt cheap, under $100. Nobody, nobody wanted them. Nobody liked them. You know, so, and the Webleys were were even less popular. Now they both command reasonable money. I think you can probably buy a Webley for 300 bucks, 400 bucks. It's not a very good buy, if you ask me. Um, if you really want one of these guns, if you really want a British marked used revolver um, the of course the Webley is the traditional choice but if you really want to shoot it and really want to enjoy it as, as kind of a shooter and a collectible the Smith and Wesson is a much 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 better alternative 
So um, going through that, I loaded the, what I did was I had a 358 mold. Well, the bore on them are notionally 360. Whether they actually are or not, I don't know. I've never actually slugged one because, frankly, it's just not worth the trouble. So what I did was I said, well, I can shoot 358 bullets out of it. Or I can do the, uh, I can do kind of redneck sizing here. And I can, uh, you know, using my, my country boy ingenuity that I uh, developed on the ranch, um, I basically powder coated them because I know that powder coating can sometimes increase a bullet's diameter at least at the uh, at least at the uh, grooves the lubrication grooves by about th three thousandths of an inch so I thought well three five eight plus three thousandths is three six one which is what it's supposed to be so that's what I did and I don't know I, I think it's it's probably really close so uh, I got those I loaded them into the cartridges that I'd chopped made and you know did all kinds of nice things to like you know take the rough edge off and bevel them and and um, then expand the mouth and I, I primed them uh, I did about 15 cartridges no I did more than that no I did about 15 and uh, uh, I did have a soft case where when I when I basically seeded the bullet and you put it behind a very modest powder charge uh, you can look it up in Ly Lyman cast bullet handbook I don't really want to give out data but um, yeah it's 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 only like 1.6 grains of a popular pistol powder which is which is the smallest that may be the smallest powder charge I've ever used in a gun I don't know <laughs> and it's behind a 200 grain bullet so I, the, you know kind of kind of think about that but they got to keep the pressures really low because um, they that's what they do in this cartridge. So I uh, I loaded them and one of the in, in seeding the bullets one of them the case was soft and the bullet kind of went in a little kitty wumpus had a bulge on one side and uh, you know seeding bullet seeding dies don't support the case very well you know they really don't because there has to be some room in there for. So you can get the belled mouth of the case in and out of the die and all that. So they're not they're not like a sizing die and that that have tight walls that support the case. <clears throat> so excuse me, um, had to uh, you know. So I had one that just it wouldn't chamber because it was soft on one side and it bulged on one side, would not fit in the chamber. So that's fine. That happens, you know. Fortunes of war. That happens. The rest of them uh, chambered fine and worked fine. In the Webley, um, extraction was a little difficult, not because of, um, not because of pressure, but because the cases had bulged. Because the 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 Webley has very generous cylinders or uh, chambers, you know, to be expected for a wartime gun. To be expected for a Webley, you know, it's kind of, it, it just kind of, it, it is what they are. So, it, it did, but it it fundamentally worked, and. The at first, I, I need to do a lot more. If I'm ever going to shoot a Webley well, Webley just demand practice. So as I as I shot a few of the bullets, um, as I shot a few of the rounds, um, you know my accuracy was getting better. Had I kept on, had I had more ammo and kept going, I would have been very happy. So uh, it, it was shooting. It was shooting very well at the end. The uh, Smith and Wesson shot exceptionally well. I mean, it was. And I was only shooting like 10 yards, and I was shooting 10 yards offhand, and the Smith & Wesson cut a ragged hole about two inches above the point of impact. That's awesome. That's excellent. That leads me to believe that that bore is probably about right. Um, it's either a 360, which is what it's supposed to be, or maybe it is a 358 or 359. You know, it's... I don't think it's a 357 bore that you would find on a 38 special because that just my intuition tells me that 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 bullet wouldn't chamber wouldn't do a lot of things so anyway I think um, it, for the Smith & Wesson it was a winning combination for the Webley it was usable and it turned and the, the, the whole experiment proved that you can uh, you know within some flexibility within some parameters uh, you can kind of expand and use other components to fill a need the other thing I came to though 
and this is the funny part by the time I had invested all the time in creating the cases you know going through all the standard loading stuff and 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 everything else I would have been better served with a cap and ball pistol because while it is slower to load I all the time I devoted to everything else could have done if, if you took the amount of time if you fired and I I said if I did 24 of these things and I fired 24 shots out of a cap and ball then the cap and ball pistol is still much more time efficient it's it's going to be slower to reload but that's about it but all the the work I put into you know getting this other thing going a cap and ball pistol would have been better and and more powerful and and more powerful so the uh, but the, the good thing is if you've got one of these and you want to put some time into it and you you do the other things like casting and hand loading and all that it is possible to make some usable not optimal it is it is really suboptimal ammunition but you can make some usable ammunition out of this and um, you know turn return one of these guns to some sort of service whether you carry it around for for varmints or plinker as a plinker or whatever whatever it is but it's not going to be something where you can just crank out scads of ammunition and, and of course if you have the correct if you have the correct cartridge cases then then it's you know it's a whole different ball game then but the other the correct cartridge cases are getting hard to find right now they're impossible to find so uh, it's like the mythical nine millimeter Largo it's difficult to find and if you got a gun that takes it you got to find a substitute for it but it was nice knowing that bullet casting powder coating and kind of creating cutting down and and creating my own cartridges effectively worked and uh, out of the cartridges I fired one of them did develop a tiny split which means it's it's toast the other ones were bulged but probably could be reloaded again you're, you're never going to get the 10 or 15 reloads out of them that you might if you were loading 38 wad cutters and shooting them in a a model 14 or a model 15 or something from Smith and Wesson but you are going to be able to load it probably twice and uh, you know that's not a bad thing that's not a bad deal right then and there you can you can basically return a gun to some sort of service which is a good thing so that was that was my big experimental thing but um, I've never actually used that uh, that bullet before and, and let me tell you something these loads are not powerful I mean I would not I would much rather have a cap and ball uh, cap and ball is probably turning out superior velocity superior everything these these were pretty wimpy these were pretty wimpy but they work they do work okay well we're running short of time but we only have a couple of questions and uh, we'll see if we want to do do this uh, we will go to questions and answers which is actually my favorite favorite part what impact will sanctions against Russian ammo have on the US market and we've already answered that um, you know what I at first everybody was alarmed but then when they realized that a lot of this production has been decentralized out of Russia proper um, it'll have some impact but I don't think it'll have the it won't throw us into another panic shortage but it will mean that some of our low-cost ammo will be kind of hit and miss for a while uh, I understand that they're they're gonna produce some nine millimeter P in uh, uh, Poland so you know the, the equivalent of tall ammo will come out of Poland there's still stuff coming out of Romania Bulgaria um, I think primary arm was it primary arms no 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 Palmetto State Armory is basically saying in 2023 they will have a factory producing steel case 762 by 39 and uh, 545 and 762 by um, 54 rimmed so there you go uh, there'll be some on the market whether there'll be enough or not I don't know but I think I think that they will meet the market demand that's the certainly the target at this point and you know it's going to be hard to uh, get <laughs> they won't sanction ammo from a NATO ally that, that kind of needs the money Poland is not a incredibly wealthy company country same thing with um, 
you know, Romania. So these kind of newer NATO countries that might have been members of the Warsaw Pact or use Warsaw Pact weapons and ammo, um, if they can turn that capacity, they're, that's going to be a much more stable supply than, uh, than Russia, which is, you know, diplomatically always seems to be um, at odds. So anyway, that's, that's the good news there. Oh, okay, here's, I think somebody read this one. What is the most overrated military revolver? Um, I think I already said the Webley, and it's got to be the Webley by a country mile. Um, I'm not a Webley fan. Um, I have experience with three Webleys. Uh, one of them shot well. This 38 does not particularly shoot well for me. It, it seems to hit to the left. And I cannot figure out why, but the more I shoot it, it, it kind of straightens out. So it's it's probably me, not it. But I'm not a Webley guy. I didn't grow up with Webleys, so I'm a poor example of a Webley shooter. So uh, for me, it just doesn't. For me personally, they just don't work. So I think they're the most overrated one. The uh, other most overrated one, I do have to say, and this pains me, but the Colt New Service uh, Model 1909. That's a tough gun to shoot. It's a when you shoot that the model 1909 and then shoot an early configuration model 1911 it's 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 a huge difference and you can understand why the 1911 was such a leap forward so it's not that the 1909 is a bad revolver but i find the uh, colt new service to be a bit big for me some people with guys with big hands love it they, they, I knew guys who, who had big hands. I absolutely loved it. Thought it was actually the greatest revolver. I'm more of a Smith & Wesson N-frame guy. So, um, yeah, I don't uh, I don't think that. And, and, of course, the worst military revolvers we ever had were probably the Colt 1901 38 Long Colt. Yeah, you know, the less said about those, the better. So there we go. Oh, uh, will new ammo innovations like the ones the U.S. military is making change the civilian market? You know, we had that question, and the only reason I didn't throw that question out is because there is this fixation that what the military is using is what I should be using. You know, and I'm talking about generically. I'm not talking about me personally, but there's a lot of people who think if the military is using it, I should use it. And if this is the emerging technology, I need to get on this bandwagon. After the Afghanistan debacle, and this is a very cynical, heretical viewpoint, but what I will tell you is make up your own mind and use what works well for you. In my mind, the ultimate cartridge for an AR is 5.56, not 6mm arc, not 6.8, not any of this other stuff the military is playing with. Uh, brass cased ammunition and for the most part steel cased ammunition work great I don't know that I need a polymer cased round that's got a you know brass base I unless it's significantly cheaper I, I don't know that it offers me anything so why would I go to it and I'm not being a Luddite and saying I, I can't take a a um, you know, forward that, that I'm anti-technology or anti-progress. I'm just saying there's certain stuff that the new stuff works. Is it as good as the old stuff? Or if it's the same, why go to the new stuff if it's going to cost you more? If it's a if it's a bigger hassle. So, okay, the ammo and, and and the thing is, well, the ammo is a lot lighter. Okay, well, great. You know, that is not that great a factor for most of us. Even the people who think it is a factor, it's really not that big a factor. So. I would say uh, forget that. Make up your own mind. You know, frankly, I don't have a whole lot of confidence in the people who are making decisions after this Afghanistan thing. Why would I listen to generals who approve this stuff, think it's a good idea, when everything else they've done has not been a good idea? Be independent. Think for yourself. That's the thing I would say. I mean, I don't really want to go into a tirade against incompetence at the uh, flag officer level but uh, frankly um, I wouldn't listen to him why should you all right and here's our last question as we're rolling up on an hour is the Browning high power still a good issue sidearm uh, I think it is I think it's a great sidearm it's 
in this day and age 13 rounds isn't very much you can get probably some extended magazines or some you know optimized magazines that hold more browning high power is incredibly reliable um i have to say i i'm a 1911 man but there's a big oh i, I tell you I tell you what did it um the first semi-automatic handgun i ever bought was an m1911 the second one i bought was a browning high power i love the browning high power it is a fantastic fantastic sidearm and it's still relevant today and in fact i think countries that have kind of gone away from it have only done so more out of style and fad rather than actual performance and um you know our friend of the podcast is a he's a diehard um browning high power guy and i'm i'm with him on that i'm absolutely with him on that it's an easy gun to overlook because it's it's so good that everybody just kind of uh you know everybody's always looking for something newer but they forget the excellence of the browning high power but yeah i've i've always had a browning high power and uh i always will i think it's a great gun well that's it for this edition of old school guns the podcast that tells you like it is and uh, as always remember you can email us at kbmakel at aol.com kbmakel at aol.com or leave the comments on podbean which is our server and uh, until next time this is old school guns out <laughs>